Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome. Um, I'd like to start tonight by acknowledging that we're meeting on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And this is a site where for many centuries knowledge was shared and ideas discussed sitting around um, in what's called yarning, having a yarn, which resonates very much with what we're doing tonight. Now let me briefly, very briefly, just situate Bhutan for you because it is exotic and if you haven't been there, it, it, it's something else. So the kingdom is known as Drukyul, land of the thunder dragon. It's been described as a pebble between two boulders because it's small, physically small. It has a population of just 755,000 people and it's the pebble between the two boulders of China and India that are behemoths, both with over a, million, a billion in population. Bhutan has long been wary of being overwhelmed culturally and politically by these two large neighbours, and it's looked inward, traditionally. For a long time it was closed to the outside world. So during most of the 20th century, when the rest of the world was fighting world wars and massive seismic geopolitical shifts, Bhutan was concentrating on developing its own culture um, and reinforcing those values. When the fourth king came to the throne in the 70s, he had a long-term vision for the kingdom that included sending very bright Bhutanese students to universities outside to learn specific skills and bring them back to Bhutan. I had it explained to me as take the best from the West and leave the rest. <laughs> so in, the, in about 1982, Kinley was chosen, young Kinley, new high school graduate, to start the media industry in the kingdom. To do that, he was sent to Bathurst in Australia to learn journalism. It was an extraordinary year that the king chose to send him to Australia. In that year was Peck, a TV journalist from Singapore, Andrew Denton, who went on to become one of Australia's most recognisable faces, public cheeky person and probably our best interviewer, unarguably, uh, Jane Hutchins, a Jane Hutchins from the ABC, um, and Amanda Keller, radio superstar. So an extraordinary year. And that's where I will now hand over to Andrew to take you through what happened after that. Well, thank you, buddy. I didn't actually realise we were going to spend the entire time going through my time at Bathurst, but let me think. Day one was, no, we won't do that. I'd like to introduce, um, I actually started a couple of years before Kinley, and um, last night was the first time I've seen him in 40 years, and what struck me is we haven't changed a bit, either of us. Uh, uh, 
And I, it was very interesting last night as we were talking, uh, myself and some of our other friends from Bathurst, we were all uh, teenagers. I started college, I think, when I was 17. And Kinley was one of the international students, as was Peck. And um, I remember playing late-night table tennis and, and pool with Kinley and, and, and thinking of this man from Bhutan. You know, he didn't know anyone. I thought it was, uh, you know, be nice to extend the hand of friendship. But I, I realised as I was talking last night with my other friends from uh, then Mitchell College that we were almost entirely incurious about Bhutan. Uh, we just saw Kinley as another friend at college. And uh, so tonight is an opportunity to redress that lack of uh, curiosity by exploring Kinley's story. So without any further ado, will you please welcome Dasho Kinley Dorchi. Thank you. So, um, while I made a mighty journey from Mentma Falls to Bathurst, uh, Kinley came from here, Bhutan. And just to set a little bit of the scene, if you could, Kinley, you were telling me last night when you were four years old, you saw the very first car to come to Bhutan. Can you describe that experience? Yes. Well, this was uh, around 1962-63. Bhutan remained hidden as a small country with big neighbors. The decision made by our leadership, the kings, was, was to hide in the mountains. That's how we survived. And I think it worked. By the 60s, you know, with, because of the geopolitical situation, uh, Bhutan decided to open up. And one of the first uh, steps taken was to build a road from the border, the Indian border, to the capital of Bhutan, about 100 and 180 kilometers. So that road was built by the end of 63, I think it was... Uh, completed and the first motor vehicle was brought in that was a jeep uh, an indian made jeep uh, which came to bhutan and when it arrived in the capital you know we, we the capital was a little village so we were called to come and see this thing so we went and saw this thing yeah a jeep it was interesting on the way i believe the uh, bhutanese officials you know, met, lined up along the road and offered food and water and all that also to the jeepus. For them, anything trans that carried things needed food and water. It used to be horses and ponies before. Yeah. So that's, there's something very sweet about offering water and food to a jeep. I think that's great. Before we go further with your journey to Bathurst, uh, I feel like a red carpet interviewer here. Who are you wearing tonight? What is this you're wearing? Um, well, it's it's called a it's called a go. This, this is what uh, men wear. Particularly, it's really a dress code. Mm -hmm. This is a formal dress. If you now, especially if you walk around Thimphu in the, the capital city, you find young people in jeans in the disco. Uh, you know, all west. Influenced, of course, the media influence, globalization. But this is what we've been uh, wearing all as far as we remember. Thick, thicker material in winter, yes. lighter clothes in summer. And do you wear that most days? Yes, yes. yes. I mean, uh, this is our official. Uh -huh. This is, we'll wear it to office, we wear it to, for ceremonies, we, for the, the past, our older generation, they wear it. You know, they've always worn it, they wear nothing else. Just going back to the, the road uh, that was built, uh, that mighty work that many Bhutanese actually worked on uh, voluntarily, can you briefly tell me, uh, tell the audience what you were telling me earlier today about the first traffic meeting in Bhutan? 
Okay, so once we had this um, this Jeep, we had a motor vehicle, the government owned. We had a, the, then the cabinet then was two or three old ministers, grand old men, really the mm. traditionalists. And they started thinking they, because they felt the responsibility. So they were saying, now what do we do? That sooner or later, Bhutan, the government or somebody will buy a second vehicle. Now, if they travel in the opposite direction, how are they going to cross each other? Mm. So that's what I describe as the first traffic meeting. But they, they, they couldn't conceive yeah. if, if people walk towards each other, I mean, they cross each other. Mm. But he, they would, couldn't figure out how these two vehicles would cross each other. And this is, this is really what's fascinating about your story. You grew up without newspapers, radio, television, and yet you were tasked by the king uh, to come to Australia to study journalism. Uh, do you remember when you were chosen, what you were asked to do? Not necessarily. The, uh, after I went back from Bathurst, I had to mm. well, I st start a newspaper. There, there was an old, there was a former a government small bulletin. We had to develop that and expand it into, mm. and start a newspaper. But you, yeah. were, you were asked to go to Bathurst to study journalism. Did you have any sense what that was? Not a clue. <laughs> Not a clue. Mm. Good start. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, there's a picture, there's Kinley and Peck, uh, those two gorgeous people at, uh, at college there. Um, and uh, the story of Kinley and Peck is actually a beautiful one as well because it took you, I think, another five or six years after you graduated college before Peck came to Bhutan. And now you've got three children. Yes. 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 She, she lived in Singapore mm -hmm. and helped me with the, with the newspaper. We had to bring everything from Singapore, yes. from computers to software to, to laser printer to some even printing paper. I'll, I'll get to the starting up the newspaper in a minute, but when you, uh, if you could just describe your journey from Bhutan to Bathurst, because there are a number of firsts for you, weren't there? Okay. Oh, yes. Every, everything was a first, but I didn't realize that. Mm. Because uh, from I had to go say goodbye to my mother, so walk to the village. It was two days, one day walk there, one day back. Mm -hmm. Then two days on a bus to the Indian the one domestic airport in India, where I saw my first aeroplane. Uh -huh. yeah. And I got into that aeroplane. The uh, then uh, Calcutta, Bangkok, Sydney, and uh, Sydney. I was put in. It's a little bit of a reputation, I think, but uh, I was put into a hotel where I first saw my first television set. Ah, yes. and what was that like? It, oh, interesting. I fiddled around with it and managed to switch it on, but there was a hor horror movie. Mm -hmm. You know, there was all, yeah, all snakes and all that. I was, it was really frightening, but I didn't know how to change the channel. That was a welcome to Australia, Kinley. That was not <laughs> yes, a horror movie. I guess so. I didn't know how to change. I didn't want to experiment too much in case I broke... I spoiled it. Mm -hmm. So I covered my head and tried to sleep. I couldn't watch that. It was also the first time you'd encountered a lift? Yes, that was the next day. Uh, this uh, nice lady came and took me to the, uh, foreign, to the scholarship office and the lift got stuck. I didn't, I didn't really know what was going on. They were panicking and when someone fainted and all that, I was wondering oh, what's, what's going on because I didn't know that lift was not supposed to stop between two floors. Right. Yeah. I so you have come from this ancient culture, as, as Bhante described, a country which had focused on preserving its culture. And you came to Mitchell College at Bathurst. Now, my first experience of Mitchell College at Bathurst, and I, I fear it was yours, uh, was orientation week, uh, where amongst other 
wonderful rituals, they have a thing called the Iron Man competition, where very large cubic men drink as much beer as they can and then generally vomit. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you have any memory of that. I missed the orientation, so I... Ah, I well, we're going to reenact it for you now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, um, the word culture shock seems too small uh, to describe what it must have been like for you coming from uh, such a cloistered life, from a, a society which was in some ways still feudal, to Bathurst. What are your memories of arriving and, and ori orienting yourself? I think when the, when the shock is that large when the difference is that big, you kind of numb your way through, I think. Because mm -hmm. I didn't think about what was going on. I didn't try and analyze. Just kind of, I think, followed things. Mm -hmm. And uh, followed you to the bar, I think, and did some of those things. <laughs> How did you, because you would go back to your room at night and you, you, you had to work out how to navigate this new world. What was your tactic for doing that? No details. I don't remember the details, but, uh, well, the different thing is like, uh, it was very difficult to understand people initially mm. because, because of the accent. I thought I had gone to a British a boarding school in India. Mm -hmm. I thought I spoke English, but uh, I couldn't understand, uh, I couldn't understand uh, the Aussie accent so much. Then the, well, uh, writing, well, it was, it was uh, I must say, fun, you know little difficult, but I just followed the first, in fact, the first few weeks, I wouldn't even remember how it, how it happened, what happened. But. Oh, I'm surprised you can't understand Australian accent, mate, because it's, uh, <laughs> you know, probably the other one, Kinley. Uh, <laughs> you were taught, because you studied journalism, obviously, uh, um, and you were taught by somebody well-known to uh, Australians, but um, many people probably wouldn't know this. One of our finest writers and one, probably our greatest crime writer, Peter Temple, was yes. a journalism lecturer. Now, I actually didn't do journalism, but I used to hear yourself and others come back from journalism lecturers absolutely shell-shocked by his method of teaching. Can you explain a bit about the Peter Temple method of teaching journalism? Well, again, we started with, you know, the writing exercises, and I know that the first few uh, assignments that were given to us would be marked zero. Some, I know some of one or two friends who got minus something <laughs> out of 10. So I, that was another, I guess, part of the culture shock and <laughs> absorbed. But uh, it took us, I think it took me a long time to realize how good a instructor, mm. teacher he was. And what was it that you, in retrospect, realized you'd learned from Peter? Language, I mean, the cutting rhetoric, cutting the bullshit, really, mm. I think, in writing. So you do speak Australian. <laughs> <laughs> After three years, it was, you know. Yes, it, it, it was built in. I, I should say, and I'd like to say publicly, that Kinley was, um, as you're probably seeing already, was the personification of charm uh, at college. And, and uh, I don't know if um, that was the way you, you'd been brought up. That was reflective of Bhutanese society or um, the education you had, but you were uh, extremely good at um, uh, getting along with people without in any way not being yourself, which was... Not easy for people at that age, no matter where they were from. I guess that, that's cultural. I think that's how we grew up. You know, the, it was initially a bit uh, jarring, you know, the, all the, the, the directness, which I came to appreciate. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what happens. To, that's uh, the experience of most Bhutanese, I think. 
Can I go back to the fourth king? I'll ask you a bit more about him personally in a moment, but his idea that Bhutan uh, needed to train this young generation up, and eventually it was him that uh, tasked you to start up a newspaper. Why did he want to do that? The, the you know, Bhutan's opening up actually started with the third king in the 60s, uh, in the 1960s, but the fourth king uh, came into power in 1972. And by then, I guess he sensed what was happening around the world. And the world was had moved into the age of information. Mm. You know, we went through stages. Initially, it was infrastructure. So it was roads, bridges, and then schools, hospitals. Mm. And then by the uh, late 80s, you know, it was inf the information age and uh, the government with the king as the head of the government decided, okay, time to develop the media, mm. starting with the newspapers, radio. Television came much later to Bhutan. Uh, the name of the newspaper is uh, Kunsel. Kunsel, that's right. Yeah. Um, now, you, start, you said you had to bring everything from Singapore. You literally uh, started from scratch. Can you explain how you build a newspaper from scratch? Mostly with help of friends. You know, because I would here uh, at college, I learned to use a typewriter or trying to use a typewriter. But uh, in a year or two, uh, the when we were talking about uh, producing a newspaper, we you know a friend from a friend who's around here also in Singapore, Tengguan, knew all about computers. He well, he was excited, very excited about what Apple was doing. Mm -hmm. You know, Apple was producing little uh, computer and software. So that's what we we took. We didn't really analyze it so much. We knew that there was this. Uh, uh, there were computers. There was software called uh, PageMaker. So we bought this in Singapore. We took it to Bhutan and did the page. I mean, mm. Literally, in the, we had an idea in the mind about how to an A A three. This is what the newspaper should look like. But we didn't know how to produce it because the technology newspaper uh, print technology. I mean meant nothing to us. Mm. You know, the hot metal press that was completely uh, irrelevant for Bhutan. Yes. So this, these two little computers and the printer and eventually a Heidelberg uh, printing machine and we produced uh, the paper. The, we had, of course, many problems like people didn't want to read on weekend because reading for Bhutanese people meant work, any kind of reading. Mm. So we had to uh, in, introduce the concept of reading for other reasons. Then we didn't have stable power so we had to uh, link it to a you know, to a solar panel. Well, as I understand, for a while you had a power cord running from a Swiss bakery that was across the yes. street, and that was yes. running the the uh, yes. the newspaper. Swiss bakery man, they, they, the Swiss bakery man had fixed solar panels on his roof. Mm -hmm. So we pulled wires from the solar panel, charged a truck battery, you know, the big Tata truck battery, and we plugged the computer in there. <laughs> uh, you said that you had to encourage people to read for other reasons. How do you do that? Well, once the newspaper came out, it's a, it was a weekly, distributed on Saturdays, people picked it up. Mm -hmm. People started picking it up because we were providing kind of information which uh, they normally didn't have. In the past, it was oral. It is actually in many ways still a very strongly oral society. I mean, our biggest, the uh, media biggest uh, competition has always been gossip. Mm -hmm. So, but once we started distributing the newspaper on a Saturday, sending it out to the different districts on buses, the people started looking forward to it and uh, you know, then started reading like notifications and news. 
Your very first advertisement was almost by accident, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. It, it came all of a sudden because this man uh, came from the a northern district in Bhutan called Ha. They were yak herders. Mm-hmm. So, but he and in Bhutan, the most popular sport is archery, and people used only bamboo equipment. By then, they realized they saw the modern fiberglass bows, and he wanted one. Had no money, so he had this idea of announcing. Making an announcement in the newspaper saying, "I will give a fully grown male yak for a compound bow." <laughs> okay, we are now, and that was the beginning of advertising. <laughs> That's where it all started. I've actually got um, Bunty uh, gave me some copies of Quinsell to look at, and this is uh, the coronation of the fifth king, the edition of the, and uh, so the front pages, are, as you would expect, that's the big story. I like the fact that the big story on the inside page is woman mugged. <laughs> I think that's, uh, I like the scale there. The, uh, yes, I think uh, this is called the so-called development process. Yes. Once we started modernizing, we started seeing different problems. Mm. And uh, the, I think, uh, well, it's probably still, fortunately, it's fairly rare mm. that uh, you, of these, these incidents, but it's emerging things that come with, uh, with growth, with modernization, with development, with change. Mm. You yourself, you, when you left Quinsel, which was in 2009, you'd written, uh, I think you said you'd written something like 1,200 editorials. And part of the reason you have been honoured here and in, within your own country is because of the way you influenced Bhutan's ability to look at itself. And you wrote that um, there were real challenges to developing and extending uh, free speech because your society itself resisted that. Why was that? The, of course, when we... When the even a hint of having done something, having achieved something, makes us or me a little uncomfortable because I really I don't think I did that much. Things just happened, but but uh, small. That's, that's clearly society. not. That's clearly not true. <laughs> I mean, you were tasked to do something and you did it. It didn't just happen. Well, I mean, but talking about it, uh, yes. I think it makes us we shy away from that kind of. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it's, if it's equivalent to boasting. You know, it's, I don't think it's good for our karma. We're thinking about the next life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not good merit. But, but in Bhutan, yes, uh, in a small society where you, we're all related to each other, literally. Mm. And uh, that's where you, whatever you do, there's reaction from society. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, and we, uh, and I learned to, learned to uh, self-censor. Because I was aware of this small society and what kind of reaction there would be. But you also felt you and saw that you had a duty to uh, be part of uh, what the fourth king, the fourth king's vision for a country that was going to start to look outward more than inward, which meant there were times you had to write things which people found provocative or uncomfortable. Can you give an example of when you would have done that? Well, um, the, you know, first of all, in terms of reaction, uh, if someone came and shouted at me or challenged me as an editor for what we had written, that would have been okay. Mm-hmm. But then you uh, could have a, an older person coming uh, and sitting down saying, look, you know, I grew up, your father and I grew up together. You know, we used to share, eat from the same plate. You know, why do you need to write this? Yeah. That's a little more difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. And uh, some, of the, some of the reactions like once, you know, 
because until 99, uh, television was illegal mm-hmm. in Bhutan. Television wasn't uh, you know, formalized. And we were well, a photographer. This is just an incident. A photographer of the newspaper uh, found someone hiding a television dish in a bush in the garden. Mm-hmm. And, and he photographed that. And they asked me to print it. And we said, yeah, why not? Don't use names and all that. To print. But the moment it, the, it was printed, the owner of that came. A huge complaint. And as a result, you know, the... That my that person's five year old son and my five year old son were best friends. My five year old son was not invited to his birthday party. Right. So sometimes it can be a little bit. Those things are a little more uh, difficult to deal with. I think. But were there times where you f- clearly felt it was your duty to put your responsibility to uh, Bhutan ahead of potentially um, spoiling a relationship you might have with someone? Yes, there was no choice. Yeah. Mm. In what kind of areas would you be doing that? Um, mostly social. Because, because what uh, the mentality of the people then at that stage was like, this is my business. Why are you making it public? Mm. You know, whether, you, whether the person is doing something right or wrong. I think that's thinking. You know, it's like, uh, here I'm doing something and you go publishing, telling everyone. I mean, you know, what for? Hmm. So that kind of uh, reaction. And then sometimes we had, to, we had to bring in the idea that some things you do is actually there's public interest involved. On the question of public interest, the, the, the king in Bhutan, as I understand it, um, is revered in a way that's difficult for us to understand well beyond any other monarchy that we'd be aware of, a, a truly beloved figure and respected. But there would have been times where the, the newspaper without directly questioning the king, might be uh, obliquely questioning a direction that the country was taken, which might be seen as criticism of the king. What would happen in those situations? No, we did that quite often. Right. And I think the king saw that as something quite healthy, mm-hmm. I mean, something that helped actually point out certain things. Yeah. So that, uh, that itself wasn't a problem because we questioned the government all the time. You know, and then government, well, we did it uh, gently, not, uh, I mean, not using, not in harsh language. I think skillful means, sometimes a little indirectly. But that would have much more impact than being very direct and loud in another culture. I'm curious about how you were able to do that um, easily because uh, I think uh, about half your, half the government advertising went to you. Uh, that was where most of your income came from. And um, for a long time, you were, only the, you were the only newspaper in the country. So how did you maintain a level of independence to, to be able to criticize the people that were providing a lot of your money? Uh, very difficult to describe in sh- uh, briefly, but the whole uh, approach was, you know, I think, pushing the boundary of speech, mm. you know, step by step. That's what we were Doing. There were things we wouldn't, uh, you know, every, I guess, as time passed every year, we were being, uh, we were pushing things a little further. Uh, whole society. Mm. And then after a while, we had to, well, we used actually things like uh, strategies like letters to the editor, which sometimes I wrote myself. And uh, <laughs> other things which, uh, you know, the, yes. and advertisement commentaries and all that, mm-hmm. you know, to... To, you know, to reflect people's concern. Right. Did some of those letters complain about you as the editor? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not really. <laughs> I didn't go. 
I would have done that if I were you. It would have got rid of all the complaints, like, oh, that person's going in hard. Yeah. <laughs> but, but actually, talking about letters, you know, the one example uh, that comes to mind is that there was, we had, we had a hospital in the capital. The hospital, the hospital was running out of water because one or two very important people had siphoned the water from the sauce before the hospital. Mm -hmm. So the hospital itself, you know, was, was dry. Mm. And one of the uh, lab, one of the chemists, someone who worked in the laboratory came to see me, talked to me about what can we do. So I said, why don't you write a letter? Don't mention names, because in the small place, everyone knows what's going on. But just say, unfortunately, I can't wash my test tubes. Mm. So he actually wrote a letter the newspaper came out on the Saturday, early Saturday morning, 9 a.m. on Saturday. The king was at the hospital saying, okay, what's going on? Mm. You know, and uh, so he called the minister, directors, and, and demanded an explanation. And he said, I want it fixed in 24, within 24 hours. And I'm guessing it was. Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, he was back to see whether it was fixed. And it was? And that hospital didn't have water problem for a long time. Mm. <laughs> yes. That's pretty good. One of the challenges, of course, of Bhutan is uh, for a long time, uh, it was difficult to get newspapers to the east of the country. It was, it was not easily accessible. Um, not only did you train a lot of journalists, but you eventually were able to build a printing press which could distribute to the east. Um, Peck told me a, a really instructive story last night that when she was quite new to journalism in Bhutan, a story came from the East where I think telephone the telephone line was installed in the early 2000s there. And the story had been sent to her that um, uh, a Japanese team had uh, arrived in this small town to in install a telephone. And the story she had got was a Japanese person in this town because they'd never seen a Japanese person. And as Peck told her to me last night, she said, I changed that story around because I thought the story was about telephone comes to town for the first time. And she said, it was only much later that I realized that in fact, I got that wrong, that the true story there was these people had never seen someone from Japan at all. So the sense I got was that the uh, a lot of the outlying parts of Bhutan, the idea of a newspaper was, was a very alien concept. Is that true? Yes, yes. Oh, talking about the Japanese, I think the also the what people, what struck the people was that, you know, in Bhutan, when you took meat, you have a large volume of rice and chilies and meat and whatever. But these people, uh, this Japanese team were asking only for hot water. And then they were pulling instant noodles out of the bag and, you know, and uh, eating instant noodles and people didn't quite understand that. But uh, in terms of uh, story, every visitor to Bhutan was a story. Mm. Do you have fake news in Bhutan? Do we have fake, fake news? I don't know. Probably in some form or the other. Yeah. You know, knowingly or unknowingly. Not, mm. not everything is verified. Yes. Was, was in a... Oral society, the stories do spread. Mm. By the way, I should say, we're going to talk for about 45 minutes and then you're going to get a chance to ask questions of Kinley. So start storing up your questions. Um, if you can't think of questions, I'm just going to nominate people and make them ask her questions. <laughs> uh, freedom of the press, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a big issue in this country. It's becoming increasingly encroached. Is that important in Bhutan? Yes, it's written in the, the Constitution of Bhutan has three very specific articles. Freedom of expression, freedom of media, specifically, and right to information. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think the fourth king and the uh, 
drafting team were conscious of the need for you know legislation to support this the i mean it might take it might be a gradual process but is there uh, protected by the law mother of all laws i suppose i think we need to send some of our people to your country to learn a few things take the best from the east be a better beast i want to talk about the uh, the fourth king there he is uh he seems like a a quite remarkable man to me he took the throne when he was 16 yes. uh then the youngest monarch in the world and still at 16 that's when he first spoke about the idea of gross na national happiness being more important than gross domestic product now before we get to what gross national happiness is where does a young 16 year old man get that kind of insight you know the kings of bhutan uh, the tradition was that the young prince or the crown prince would be brought up by the father mm -hmm. you know in court being exposed to all the responsibilities of governance so that's how they are, i think is brought up intuitively so and then the from his generation you know they was they studied they read more you know the our king the fourth king i i know a number of foreign journalists who came uh, came to bhutan british well including bbc uh, cnn and all that and when they interviewed him and they come out of the aud audience with the king they suddenly realized that they were interviewed hmm. you know a lot of my journalist friends said that you know they were, the king asked them so many questions that they realized that instead of them interviewing the king often interviewed them hmm. so i think that was, that was the kind of a very uh, inspire very enlightened learning process even so 16 is uh, you know this idea is still considered to be uh, if not revolutionary evolutionary 16 is very young to have that kind of an insight do you have a sense of of what led him there maybe just off the cuff maybe if you're placed on the throne you have no choice but to take the responsibility for an entire population mm -hmm. you're suddenly a father figure he felt uh, a great need to modernize bhutan he ultimately abdicated and uh, brought in uh, democracy uh, yes, democratic yes. elections yes what was it and, and the people didn't want him to abdicate they really oh, didn't yes, want yes, him to go a lot of yeah, what was old. it that he uh, saw why did he want to make his role as the uh, as the central government um, redundant i would think that uh, he had a perspective of, of what was happening around the world but the he was actually directly or indirectly asked specifically you know like why i mean here you are, people literally worship him you know so why abdicate people are overwhelmed everyone very emotional mm. and uh, he basically said look bhutan the small vulnerable country between with large neighbors in this big world should cannot be left in the hands of one man particularly one man who's chosen by birth and not by merit and then of course people ask why now though you know what's the hurry you know look at what's uh, you know what's happening around the world in the region and uh, they, we don't have problems so why do you want to change it and american journalists actually quoted saying uh, trying to fix something that ain't broke mm. you know? and uh, he said oh you should bring in change when things are working well don't wait for tragedy mm. so this it was very very uh, clear sighted and you told me last night that he uh, now that he's his son is on the throne that he basically uh, likes bike riding around the country yes he yes. is he's basically a step back yes he's known to cycle around uh, 
you know, around the valley and all that, but he's stepped out of the scene. And what I didn't understand, when we think of, you know, palaces and so on, the Bhutanese king lives in a, a small house. Oh, he's always lived in a small uh, cottage, mm. uh, like a log cabin. Right. Yeah, in the forest. So anyone could knock on his door if they so chose. Well, uh, that was the right of the people. Yeah. People could stop uh, him along the way and uh, access to the king. I mean, that's one, one of the rights of the Bhutanese people. As the editor of Quensal and, and, and went on to, uh, with Peck to do other things, you, you brought out a, a journal called uh, Druk, which is um, many thought leaders in Bhutan talking about different uh, areas. But as the editor of Quensal, you saw it as one of your duties was to um, improve the national conversation, elevate it, if you like. But you did that according to the, the four pillars of gross national happiness. Can you explain what those pillars are? That was, that's kind of reflecting the, you know, when Bhutan uh, declared, when the king declared that gross national happiness is the national vision, what we had to do was I mean, try and understand it. And uh, in many ways, and eventually to cut, you know, to cut a long story short, the, uh, we kind of identified, we as in Bhutan identified these four pillars as conditions. The, it's difficult to explain without going back a little bit, you know, what is gross national happiness? So this is the first step, identify happiness is not fun, pleasure, not the uh, temporary senses, but the deeper abiding uh, contentment. And that lies within the self. So, the, because the skepticism when uh, Bhutan first announced that, when the king first announced that was, people thought, ah, oh, yeah, you know, government guaranteeing happiness, promising happiness. That was a lot of skepticism. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's well known that governments are actually better at making people unhappy mm -hmm. than happy. So, yeah. so that's why the, the questions. We could and, export, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and so, the in terms of fulfilling that responsibility, the government uh, government had the or the state had the responsibility to create the conditions where individuals could pursue happiness. It wasn't guaranteed from the government. So those are the conditions identified as four pillars like pristine environment, your, uh, preserving your culture, sustainable economic development, and good governance. Okay, so let's step through those. Preserving the environment, uh, the king mandated... Uh, that is it 72% of your forest remains well, intact? Yeah, 72% of the country is forest right now. Mm -hmm. Yes. But the constitution, even he put into the constitution that 60% of Bhutan must always be forest for all time. Can I put a hypothetical to you? Let's say that uh, in Bhutan, an extraordinarily rich seam of rare earth minerals was found, which power mobile phones and, and computers. Uh, enough to, um, over the years, address Bhutan's health and transportation needs. Um, but it would obviously involve uh, ripping up a chunk of the environment. Under the paradigm of gross national happiness, how would that be assessed? It, uh, it wouldn't work because now there's a screening process, you know, legal screening process or the government regulation that any new initiative has to go through what's called a GNH screening process mm -hmm. where the impact on the environment and everything is measured. So we've actually, in, in, in some ways it's happened because, uh, you know, mountaineering uh, was, uh, there was a big, a lot of excitement over mountaineering because Bhutan has uh, 
20 peaks, over 20,000 feet mm. of virgin peaks. And mountaineers around the world are drooling, I think, to come and conquer, to, to climb. But mountaineering is banned. Although there, there's this uh, source of revenue, mountaineering is banned because they said Mount, our mountains are sacred. That, that, that feeling, that value is very, very strong. And is that an example of uh, traditional beliefs and protecting those traditional yes, beliefs yes, and yes. the culture of, of Bhutan? Yes, it's, it's a combination of uh, traditional belief and now a more modern uh, interpretation mm. of uh, well-being and happiness where environment is important. Traditionally, they would say, okay, these mountains are sacred. This deity resides on this mountain. We can't go trampling all over it. Mm. Okay. Uh, but now, by now, we're talking about more about environmental, the ecological balance. That's mm. important. When is GNH difficult? When does it come in conflict with the needs and the growing needs of a, of a country that is rapidly modernizing? Well, the idea is GNH does not conflict growth and development as such, but directs. The um, um, well, we talk about GNH if we interpret it as you know that it's a con personal contentment. Government has a responsibility at one level, a very the uh, interdependence. We suppose that was it's not something that came suddenly. You know, Bhutan has traditionally it was an interdependent society where in a community you have a you know the the, the carpenter, the healer, the the uh, the, the astrologer, you know, people playing different roles, the singer, strong man, people helping each other. Mm. But in Bhutan, it goes beyond that. It's nature around all life forms. You see, you know, so you would you would respect nature. I mean, you don't cut a tree to sell it. I mean, our, our grandparents wouldn't have dreamt about it. Mm -hmm. We are thinking about it. Hopefully, it doesn't happen in the future. But uh, that's the that's a very strong value already there. Mm. So. Th you know, it's that value to keep in check materialism. You know, the, I think what's very important to uh, understand or to remind everyone is that gross national happiness is a pun on gross national product. Mm. That GDP is GDP driven development, GDP driven growth is wrong. Mm. You know, the GDP is all about money. It's all about economic development. And that uh, the, you know, p pursuit of GDP, we're losing so many things. We're losing culture. We're losing our values, losing our identity. You know, we're consuming the earth, literally. Would you say that since uh, that pun was instituted, that uh, the life of Bhutanese people is measurably happier? It's a struggle, but it has, it has kind of checked unrestrained growth, mm. you know, uh, random growth. Very much so because now because you're reminded at every turn. Mm. And which I, I see as, um, uh, you know, that old story, the, uh, the ancient Greek king who had uh, allegedly had the slave whose job it was just to whisper in his ear, this too will pass. I see what you're talking about as being, it's a rubric, it's a reminder for everybody that each decision, there are other things simply in play than just the economic outcome and they're just as important and they need to be factored in. Mm. And I, as a ground, uh, ground roots thing, it, it seems to me to be um, a very wise way of looking at it. It was interesting that a survey was done of South Asian nations in 2016 and Bhutan was top for um, uh, peace, for lack of corruption, for ease of trade.
But of course, Bhutan isn't Shangri-La, and it's not a. It sounds like a perfect place, but it's far from it. Uh, Bhutanese, Bhutan has its problems, as all societies. What are Bhutanese unhappy about? Now, I was about to say that because I get a little bit uh, worried that I'm, I'm making it sound too. Too much like a Shangri-La, that mm -hmm. everything is perfect, things are working, and everybody is happy and all. That's not the case. No, it's not Bhutan's own is, country like is, Australia. You know. Bhutan, <laughs> Bhutan is a small uh, developing country, mm. you know, struggling. I think the GNH has been a reminder. But I would say the, the, you're talking about the challenges, globalization itself. Mm. No, and uh, globalization with the media being an important force of globalization, changing things. You know, young people watching television, wanting, you know, the, for example, there are in nine, when we started television in June, nine, June 2nd, 1999. The, you know, the last country on earth to get yes, television. Yes. Yeah. Before that, you know, if you ask any young Bhutani, who's your idol, who's your hero, they will say the king. A few months after starting television, say, I mean, not the, the, the culture of respect is still there, but you ask, talk to some young people, they would say David Beckham, because the World Cup, mm. in the World Cup, we were watching the World Cup, mm. and then it became uh, Hollywood, Bollywood uh, stars. So that kind of value started changing. So that change itself, you know, uh, and controlling change, directing change, that's a very big uh, challenge. Uh, it is a remarkable thought that a uh, society which was recently feudal and uh, oral tradition, uh, really it's only been in the last 25 years that you've had any media at all and the internet um, and even mobile phones uh, with all the uh, communications changes that brings. How difficult and how much do you fear for, for that core part of Bhutan's life uh, which is holding on to its traditions, holding on to the things that has made it Bhutan. How fearful are you that Bhutan will be able to maintain itself in the face of a deluge that has changed the rest of the world? I'm personally petrified. You know, I think the force is very, very strong, the change. And how does a small society resist or deal with it? Mm. That's, it's difficult because K-pop is there already there's bollywood there's hollywood mm. you know all coming into the bedroom now mm. through with television with now with social media you know people have access uh, to things which we don't actually understand mm. i think the impact of social media people are using social media but and now we have better connectivity and better exposure but we i think we don't really know how to deal with i don't know whether anyone has learned to deal with all this but uh, we uh, are finding it a pressure. The King said at the introduction of television, and it, it seems in retrospect a beautiful but naive statement. He said, you know, please use it wisely. And he, thought about, he said the same about the internet. Uh, if you could put the genie back in the bottle, would you? I wouldn't think of that. I think I've, I've uh, learned by now that it's not possible to stop change. Mm. You know, so the question, I think the focus is how do we deal with it? Mm. And what's the best, because you advise the government on, on media and communications, you work for the Ministry of Communications now, what's your best advice for how to deal with it? The, I, you know, I don't think I was as effective as I would have liked to be, even as uh, in the communication ministry with media policy, social media policy, with all this change. But, but I think to go back to this whole concept of gross national happiness, you know, if we can get a real grip on it, if we can understand it and translate that into national policy, 
I think that would be the best approach. Because we have not yet done that, I, have to, I should confess. Yeah, it's interesting because I heard you uh, on stage with David Suzuki at Banff talking about gross national happiness several, several years ago, and you were, you were struggling then with that, this idea of defining gross national happiness. Uh, is part of the problem that word happiness, which can be taken as a very hippie concept or very subjective? Yes, yes. Because I think uh, we know that you know, thinkers and philosophers have tried to define happiness for centuries and nobody's come to a common understanding. And if you ask 10 people what happiness means, you get 20 different answers, I think, mm. still. But uh, that's why the gross national happiness in the interpretation of happiness in GNH is contentment. It's not, the, it's not excitement. It's not the temporary senses. It's a deeper, much more longer abiding sense of contentment. Like you need less rather than want more. That very practical example you gave before to the hypothetical about the rare earth minerals where you said, well, that wouldn't happen in the way I was describing because it has to be assessed against these markers. That seems to me to be an example of uh, the idea of gross national happiness uh, as played out does work. So it, it does work in some areas. Is that right? It is working in some areas like, like uh, mining. We don't – we have not done a full uh, – study or survey of what minerals we might have mm -hmm. because I think uh, the because mining is a no at the moment mm -hmm. it's, there is a little bit of it, you know boulders and all that but at the moment anything that might disrupt the environment you know is is taboo mm. there's a big Indian company called Adani who don't take the call that's all I'll say <laughs> uh, I want to show, this is a photo of you uh, receiving the red scarf from uh, the king. Now, this is the equivalent of being knighted uh, under our system, which is why you are now called Dasho Kinley Dorji. What did this mean to you? Well, that moment, what I was thinking about was, was I had to wear that scarf and a sword, long sword. Mm -hmm. At that moment, I was... I was telling myself I'd better not trip on this sword and fall on my face, you know, after getting this, and I, yeah, when I'm honoured. Like, but the the real significance comes, uh, you know, much later. It's uh, it was very humbling. Mm. So and even even the fact that uh, even friends, you know, you know, close friends, casual friends, you know, I suddenly realised that would uh, would you know kind of bow or. Show a little respect. I mean, that is very touching. And there's something which I didn't deserve mm -hmm. because I haven't changed. I haven't changed in any way status. But the, the kind of uh, what it means to in the context of Bhutanese culture, I think, that was, that was uh, very touching. Mm -hmm. Peck, where are you? Does he expect you to bow at home? <laughs> All the time, yeah, I thought it. <laughs> um, uh, she, she was from Bathurst, no chance. <laughs> so, um, I was given uh, Bunty gave me this book which because um, she'd mentioned this is something that uh, is of interest to you which is called Crazy Wisdom uh, now, it's called the phallus I guess it's got a phallus yes um, now the phallus and there's a picture there the phallus is uh, is central is one of the things that's central to the idea of crazy wisdom but not as we would understand it which is something lewd can you explain what the phallus uh Symbolizes. That's a tough one. Um, you know, someone asked, when I saw this, if you asked me where this is, I wouldn't be able to tell you because it's all over the country. Mm -hmm. We paint big phalluses on the walls and these are 
all you know at every nook and corner you get this but uh, i would uh, explain it as and you mentioned crazy wisdom yes you know i think uh, crazy wisdom in short and this is very superficial because yeah. i'm not i don't have the depth to go into it but it's really uh, the teaching it's you know we have there are different schools of buddhism and in bhutan is uh, the school is called vajrayana mm-hmm. and uh, many you now thinkers many academics even are calling it is in crazy wisdom because it's the the approach is outrageous saying that you know i think that uh, what i understand is that you know this whole thinking value system of reason and rationale are actually kind of conditioning forces even uh, like ethics and morality who's decided what's ethical what's moral that there's a wisdom beyond all this and to to get there to understand it you have to uh, experience outrageousness so i mean phallus all over the place it's uh, it's an expression of that it's nothing it's not sexual in that sense mm. it's just uh, saying this is there are some realities which we try and ignore which we try and deny does outrageousness encourage you to go somewhere unexpected or does outrageousness because of the nature of its outrage make you put up shutters put up shutters as in i don't want to look no the uh, and the well, the whole picture is that it's uh, you have to be outrageous but not just outrageous you have to do it with some elegance mm-hmm. some formality so there is a balance what's an example for you i mean do you practice crazy wisdom do do you sometimes do something outrageous with elegance it's i think outrageous i have not reached that stage where you know i can take off my pants in public or anything but uh, but <laughs> tonight's the night can leave okay. <laughs> i've been warned about uh, my friend so i can see <laughs> look yeah. you never saw my famous show pants off australia where just no <laughs> okay no but uh, i think better go back to a uh, uh, crazy wisdom <laughs> yeah uh, when you say but, you think outrageous yeah. can you give me yeah. an example no it's it's just that um, the i felt that uh, you know that it's kind of breaking free it's mm. in well three words cut the bullshit you know i think it's like uh, you know all this uh, all the uh, laws rules regulations social norms that we have developed for ourselves you know that we need to go beyond this that uh, that uh, there is a wisdom which we need to try and reach a wisdom that's within you i don't want to sound like i'm preaching because this is something which i've actually uh, I, i understand very superficially mm-hmm. but uh, you know but uh, be conscious of the what's inside the fact that you said there are there are fallacies and use of fallacies all over the country suggests to me that this is a, a widely accepted it's not even an idea it's not while acceptable way of trying to think you know actually just thinking about it outrageousness could media you know because this the crazy wisdom masters in buddhism bhutan and before in tibet they kind of challenged society all the time you know they they critiqued they were social critics they made uh, literally made fun of the institutions monastic communities all that for their hypocrisy mm-hmm. and that's why that's how that's why they behaved as they did mm. and i think in many ways um, the, if the media had to have a media industry has to have had to have a deity 
that would be these crazy wisdom masters, I think. Because you do, you critique society. You uh, are become unconventional, unrestrained. Mm. You know, because, and basically cut through the hypocrisy. Which I agree with you. There are so many dicks working in the media. Uh, <laughs> can we, um, in your country, there is a tradition uh, of, uh, and a long tradition uh, still uh, on foot of people uh, going into the mountains to meditate, to seek deeper truth, um, to, to settle with the universe. Is that something you see for yourself? Is that something I... For yourself, you see for yourself? I... I haven't reached there yet. I may, I would love to, but I don't have the strength to get there at the moment. But it is, it's, it's common in Bhutan for practitioners, as we say, Buddhist practitioners, to eventually go into the mountains to meditate. We are starting. We start with, you know, meditating one or three minutes a day. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's that is a start. So me and friends and we family and we do some meditation. I do very little, but but generally that's the beginning practice. But uh, um, for us, it means that it means mm. ge getting to watch your mind, basically understand yourself, and that wisdom. Everything lies within. Is that something that's actually an ambition for you, or that? Oh, okay. What do you think of it? I mean, is, uh, would you get into something like that? Um, uh, yeah, the older I get, the more I understand the, the value of being still. And sadly, my body can't bend in any way, shape or form. So the idea of sitting that way is problematic. Um, I always liked the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the joke, which is, why do people in Los Angeles like Mahatma Gandhi? Because he's everything they want to be, which is lean, moral and tanned. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I do. Uh, look, I think uh, the truth is, there's a, it, to my mind, there's only two real questions for all of us, which is how did I get here and what happens next? And um, there are many systems which try and answer that question, but ultimately that has to be an answer for yourself. So, uh, yes, the idea of silence and um, uh, trying to go, go inside makes sense to me. I think we maybe we reached the age at some stage you think about what's happening what's going to happen next I think mm. the, as they say life is not just the you know uh, the space between life birth and death that there's what ne what next mm. where does the self go what happens so we need to I think we need to think about it and uh, I don't want to say too much because it'll be uh, preaching something which I don't really fully understand yet mm -hmm. but I think the questions are coming that's why I thought, uh, that's why, please visit Bhutan. We could maybe sit in a cave together. <laughs> I think three minutes is probably my limit. Can I? But no, I definitely intend to visit Bhutan. Um, we're going to finish. <laughs> um, we're going to end. Um, I'm not going to thank... Uh, Kinley, that's going to be uh, Bunty's job. However, um, he's, he's being a little modest. Uh, Kinley's uh, travelled uh, the world and, and spoken with and to uh, many eminent minds who wanted to hear what he has to say. He got the red scarf in Bhutan because he's been an instrumental uh, thinker as they've developed in an extraordinary way over the last 25, 30 years. So it's been a real uh, privilege for me to spend time with a man who I remember as a pretty damn good table tennis player from 40 years ago. <laughs> so my thanks, but Bunty, over to you. Um, thank you. Um, thank you to you both. That has been absolutely fabulous. 
so often when Bhutan's talked about in the Western world, it's in simplistic terms and it's got a few preconceptions, people are nodding. And I think tonight we've got a glimpse into some of the robust way that Bhutan is addressing problems that are clearly global human problems, um, which has been absolutely fascinating. So, Dasha Kinley, thank you so much for coming to Australia and thank you so much for speaking to us tonight about so many interesting topics. We really appreciate it. And before you applaud, Andrew, thank you so much for <laughs> taking this journey with us and leading um, your old classmate um, along this path. A pleasure. Thank, thank you, you both. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.